Good afternoon. I have the lovely Doug with me. Hello, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi Donna, yeah, I'm Doug Johnston. Uh, I'm a writer, obviously, that's why I'm here. Uh, <clears throat> I've had 13 novels published, um, 10 standalone books. Uh, I guess they're kind of thrillers, domestic noir, I don't really know what you call them. They all kind of broadly fall into the crime genre and most recently I've written three novels um, which are a trilogy and part of a longer series now actually about three women called the Skelfs who uh, are three generations of women who run a, a funeral directors and a private investigators in Edinburgh when the patriarch of the family dies. That's your elevator pitch for those. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm, in, I'm immersed in at the moment is those Skelf books. So that's me. I write weird, I guess not I guess crime novels that don't really fall in directly into the mainstream. I think they're more kind of on the edges of the genre, which is exactly where I like to be. <laughs> Did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? Um, yes and no. I've always written. I've always, I was writing stuff at school. I was writing short stories at school. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't really think it was a thing. I, I, I mean, like a lot of people maybe my age, I when I did English at school, we didn't read a single book that was written by someone who was still alive. It was all like old white dead guys, you know, from the previous century quite often. And so it just, I just presumed that all writers were old, white and dead. Um, and so I didn't really think that um, it was a thing. It was kind of, it was in the time before you got like um, <clears throat> authors visiting schools and stuff like that. It didn't really happen. And so I didn't really think of it as a, as a thing to be. I just enjoyed doing it. Uh, and I kind of, um, we might talk about this later, but I, I did come at writing, sort of being a published writer, a very sort of circuitous route. My first novel wasn't out until I was 36. And in that time I had been, you know, I'd done, I'd been a physicist and had a PhD and worked as an engineer and also a music journalist and various other things as well. So I'd been around the houses, um, but I was always kind of still writing in the background. I was running fanzines, you know, writing for arts publications and stuff like that. So I, I really enjoyed the writing process. It was only, it was actually only when I started to take myself seriously as a writer that things started to actually progress. So it wasn't something I would, I'd say I always enjoyed writing, but I didn't always want to be a writer because that didn't seem like an option. So what made you take the plunge and go for it and write properly? Well, that's interesting. I was, <clears throat> I mean, after I graduated, I went to Edinburgh University. I grew up in a small town um, in the northeast of Scotland. I went to Edinburgh University and I was studying physics and, and I, I quite enjoyed that. And then I eventually got a job as an engineer, which I hated. I was, I was a systems engineer I, I, working in the aerospace industry. Um, and I just I just couldn't stand that job. I just didn't see the point of it. I wasn't interested in it. Um, and I did that for four years, but increasingly over that time I was doing, I started to do, I was like running a fanzine with some friends, um, doing a lot of writing on the side. I was in bands. So I used to interview other bands, review gigs and albums and stuff like that. And I started to get some stuff I started to sort of put myself out there to, as a music journalist and I was getting stuff published uh, in like the List magazine here in Scotland, which is kind of listings thing, like Time Out equivalent, and the local newspapers and stuff like that. And I just sort of thought, well, you know, I could actually make a go of this. So I, I quit my high paid graduate office job uh, and became a freelance music writer. Uh, I think much to my mother's disgust still. Um, and then, but it was really interesting because, I mean, that was, this was like, 20 years ago now and it was a time when you could just about still make a living as a freelance journalist I think that's the can the bottoms fallen out of that very much but so what happened was I was right I was actually a lot busier I was than a nine-to-five because I was continually hustling for work you know as a freelance you're always the answer to every question Donna is like can you write about this the answer is always yes yes whatever it is I, I don't care what it is I could definitely write about it then you go and find out what it is um so I basically, uh, I was really busy hustling, but my main job was writing. It was like putting sentences together. It was journalism, all of it. Started off music journalism, but then also literary journalism. I was like interviewing other authors, which was great, and doing also anything, basically. I, I did restaurant reviews for a while, which is a nice gig, if you can get it, um, and, and things like that. And so because I was writing for my main job, I just started to take my own fiction writing seriously. I kind of written short stories before that, and kind of thrown them into like competitions and anthologies and sort of submitted them to things and never really gotten anywhere. And so it was around about a couple of years after I started as a journalist, I started working on my first novel properly, which was terrible, obviously. And, um, and uh, I sent it out to people and everyone rejected it. And, and but a couple of folk rejected it 
um, quite nicely and said, if there's anything else you're writing, we'd love to see it. So that was kind of enough of a, a kick up the arse to keep going. You know, I wasn't completely wasting my time. And so that's kind of how it, I mean, that's how I got into it from, from that side, because it, part of it is a confidence trick. Like not only, like I always think of writing as a confidence trick in a couple of ways. One, you're trying to trick the reader into believing this world you've created, right? But also you're trying to trick yourself into believing that you can do it. <laughs> like fake it till you make it sort of thing that you can just keep going and going, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm just going to keep trying until someone says, yeah, it's not that bad. I think that's my, my basic thinking. As all authors, you're all insecure, quivering little wrecks that just need constant, constant reassurance that you're fine, that you're, you're good. It's all good. <laughs> well, it's a weird sort of juxtaposition. There's definitely that <laughs> element to it. Like we're all like massively insecure and like very... Um, emotionally connected to the stuff we're doing so that you know if anyone you know you get a bad review and you know you crumble apart but also there is like the exact opposite there's an element of that as well you have to be really ballsy to sort of think well who the hell cares about what i'm doing like because you have to think well someone else is going to want to read this ultimately maybe it's just stubborn headedness but it just feels like there is an element where you have to have a really thick skin and just go this is what i want to write and i really hope that someone wants to read it and you know and, and then just deal with the consequences afterwards I know, weird. All of you weird as well, in the nicest possible way, but weird. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, nice and weird. Yeah. Um, if you were to be picked up and transported as a character into one of your own books, which book would you choose? Oh, wow. Uh, which one of my own books, if I was to be transported into it? Well, that's a very good question. You're right. You're getting some good questions already. Um, I'm... That's a very interesting question. I think something like, I don't know, do I want to be terrified <laughs> in it? Probably. I mean, I mean, the sensible part of you says you want to go into the book, which is the safest environment for, for you're probably not going to get killed. But actually, the most exciting thing would be to do the exact opposite. Um, I don't know, something like actually, well, I'll tell you what, actually, that's a good one. Uh, Fault Lines, my novel Fault Lines, which was the only one I've written so far that is it's kind of a speculative fiction book. It's set in a sort of different version of Edinburgh where um, uh, the whole of Scotland is like an earthquake and volcano zone. So there's like regular earthquakes and there's a new volcanic island off the coast of Edinburgh in the Firth of Forth. Uh, and I would love to experience that, even though it's probably going to be terrifying. You know, you speak to people from actual earthquake zones and they say no you wouldn't want to do that but I think it would be fascinating to live and you know be walking down the street in Princess Street in Edinburgh and have like you know the earth literally shaking under your feet and seeing like volcanoes erupting in the distance that would be quite cool so let's go for that. <laughs> um, if you were to choose one of your characters to take out for a meal who would you choose and what would you ask them? Who would I take out for a meal and what would I ask them? That's another very good question. Um, I think, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, who would I take out from you? Well, I think it would be one of the, I'm just like one person, right? So I think I would probably take out um, one of the Skelf women from the Skelfs books that are out at the moment. I think I would take Jenny out. She's the one that's, um, she's, just to explain, uh, if anyone hasn't uh, read the books, so there's three women from different generations. Dorothy is at 70 at the start of the first book, and Jenny's 45 and Hannah's 20. And they're all like, you know, um, mother and daughter to each other, grandmother uh, mother and daughter. Um, and sort of Dorothy is like the one that everyone loves because she's super chill and she's kind of very sorted and she just kind of gets things done. Hannah's kind of young and enthusiastic and a bit all over the place. But Jenny's kind of, Jenny's a sort of Generation X, like, uh, fuck up. She's just like... Um, she's got all sorts of problems and she doesn't deal with the world very well and I for that reason I think she's she's the least sympathetic of the three of them which is a kind of the reason why I think I like her most actually or I like writing her most because there's there's like the real grist to the mill there so I would definitely take her out for a meal and I would just want to grab her and say what the hell's wrong with you get a grip um <laughs> like look at your amazing mum and your amazing daughter and like what what lives they've got and like try and live a little bit more like them but that would make the book less interesting, I think so. That's true. Um, what character has given you the most trouble? The most trouble? Well, there's a couple, maybe. I mean, some of my early books were, were definitely the central characters were written 
to be very provocative. Like I didn't do sympathetic central characters for quite a long time, if at all, ever that could be argued. Um, my second novel, The Ossians, uh, this, the central character was a young man called Connor who, uh, so the, the Ossians is about a, a unsigned indie band who tour the Highlands and kind of fall apart in a mess of drinking drugs. And that's all Connor's fault. It's basically, he's very self-destructive. Um, so he was full of trouble. Like, I mean, he was great to, the ones that are trouble are the ones that are like great to write about actually, because like, um, because he's so, he's so hopeless. Like it gives you like, anytime you put him in any situation, he just makes it worse, which is like fantastic. Um, and the other character that springs to mind obviously is um, in terms of actually giving the world trouble is Barry from Breakers. So I wrote a novel called Breakers, which is set in um, Nidri and Craig Miller in Edinburgh, which is the poorest part of um, Edinburgh. And the central characters has a half brother called Barry, who is, well, I always had in my head like a vision of Begbie from Trainspotting for Barry. Is that, I mean, he's not quite like that, but that was the kind of, that was the benchmark. So he's certainly uncompromisingly bad, um, and violent and, aggr and aggressive and nasty. So, um, yeah, he creates a lot of trouble. Do you hide any secret jokes or messages or Easter eggs in your books? Well, Easter eggs, I'm not sure you would call them Easter eggs. There's stuff always goes in the books that is from other things. Like, the, I mean, each book has probably got a hundred things in it that are that only I know about, like where that came from. Um, <clears throat> So I don't really, it's not like an Easter egg. I did a thing where two of the standalone novels are kind of linked, or at least they're in the same world, like someone who's a central character in one turned up as a background character in another, uh, which I quite like doing that sort of stuff. That's good. I mean, in my in my mind, all the books are connected. They're all in like, you know, Johnston world or whatever. Um, the Johnston, was it? Like, like the MCU, like the, <clears throat> yeah, extended Johnston universe. Um, so I kind of see them all as being together, but they're they're not really that explicit. But in terms of Easter eggs, I mean, there's also all sorts of little things. I, I sometimes because I'm also I've been in bands for years and years and years, and I just noticed actually I'm doing the edits of the fourth Skelts book at the moment, um, and I sneaked in a phrase that's the title of a song from a band I used to be in. Now there's literally only like three people in the world who are going to get that, and I'm one of them. So I suppose that is, the, I mean, it's like the most obscure of Easter eggs that you could imagine, but that's probably, that's probably the kind of thing that I get. Awesome. Um, in your books, you must have killed your characters in some horrible ways, but if you were to be a fictional murderer, how would you kill your victims? Oh, how would you kill your victims? Well, I mean, really simplest is best. Like you just don't want to, you know, I mean, I always think the easiest way is just to get somebody somewhere remote and push them off a cliff or something like that into like deep water, right? Because you're not getting covered in blood. There's no, like you're immediately getting rid of the evidence thanks to gravity and into the sea, right? Because bodies just disappear. Even if it washes up, washes up it's probably going to be, you know, all sorts of, it'll be nibbled by fishes or, you know, battered by rocks. You can tell I've thought about this. Um, so it's like, I think that's, I mean, that really keep it simple. Like, I think so often in fiction, um, like people have elaborate kind of ways of killing uh, their victims or, like, you know, the characters in their books. And I think in real life, like so often, that's the thing that gets you caught out is that it's too, it's too complicated. And I think the other thing that is, that is really unrepresentative in, in crime fiction is that you know, the vast majority of murderers, the vast majority of people who commit murder are actually really stupid. Like, they just, they just don't think about things like, I mean, they don't think about forensic evidence in the way that I do as a writer or you as a reader does. Okay, they don't bother about that. They're just like, oh, I'm angry at that guy. I'm going to hit him with a rock uh, or whatever. I'm going to punch a guy outside a pub and then he's going to hit his head off the curb and that's going to be him. Or I'm going to hit this guy with a car and then drive off because I panic. You know, and I, I've written about that a little bit, you know, about that sort of moment of panic when you end up, you know, accidentally maybe or slightly deliberately or you're not quite sure killing someone and then, and then it's all about the aftermath. So I think that you want to avoid all that stuff if you're doing it in real life. Just make it as, as simple as possible. I mean, there was one one I always loved in um, the fictional death I always loved was, is it Tales of the Unexpected? Did you ever, did you ever watch that? Yep. 
great. But there was one yeah. where somebody somebody beat her husband to death with a leg of lamb, a frozen leg of lamb. And then when the police came around, she'd cooked it and fed it to them. So they were literally eating the evidence. I thought, oh, that was nice. That was such a cool idea. But I mean, I'm sure someone else must have ripped that off by now. Yeah, that is genius. And I, I couldn't think of anything better than that. It's really, yeah. <laughs> Um, the problems very often. Sorry, the problems very often getting rid of the body. That's the that's yeah. the hassle. Like killing someone. I mean, you have to decide morally whether you're up for it or not. But you know, um, but getting rid of the evidence is the hard thing because if you don't, because if you don't just leave them where they are, you have to then move the body, and that's not an easy thing to do. You know, I got told off once because uh, one of my novels, I had um, had them like had a bunch of people dragging a body like around a sort of cliff top walk from for hours at night. And my editor at the time said, well, that, that's just too hard. It's impossible. You can't like, how do you do that? So I ended up like they found a carpet and they rolled them up inside the carpet and carried the carpet. Cause that's actually easier to carry. So that was the way I got around that. But yeah, you've got to, you've got to the body. I don't know how you do that. That's the hard bit. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're dragging a body around, then there's just evidence for following you as well. Yeah, it's a massive trail of like, blood yeah. and DNA everywhere you go, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you were to be fictionally murdered, who would you want to solve your case? Ooh, who would I want to solve my case? That's a good one. Um, uh, who's, I mean, who's, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of dead, so I don't really, I'm not bothered. Somebody is like, what, like the best detective on the case. Well, I don't know. I'm not, well, I don't know. I'm not fussed. <laughs> Who, I'm, I'm not really, um, okay, let's say I've got an idea, right? Am I allowed something from television? So Jim Rockford, because I was a huge fan of the Rockford Files. I love that because he was kind of a bit hapless. I quite like that, that he wasn't like, you know, he's not a superhero it's not, it wasn't like a sort of brooding hunk with like, you know, um, issues and an alcohol problem and stuff like that. He was just an honest guy who lived in a caravan on the beach, which, by the way, was the coolest thing ever when I was like a kid. I thought, oh, that's amazing. Um, and he just sort of went about the business like and he never he never pulled a gun on anyone. Oh, very rarely. Like he just used to basically use his smarts um, as it was because he was a bit of a quite a cool private detective. Um, so yeah, Jim Rockford, although I'd probably have to die in the 1970s in California if that was the case, but that's, I'm quite happily do that. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. That's my budgie, if you're wondering what that horrific noise is. <laughs> Didn't hear it actually, it's fine, don't worry. Oh, I can, right through my head. <laughs> Bless him. Um, when you're editing, what's your most overused word or phrase? Oh wow! Uh, I'm doing edits at the moment, but I kind of I've done the self edit, which is where you get I hopefully get rid of most of that stuff. Um, yeah, one of the ones. I mean, there's things that always can go. I use the word that all the time, which can almost always just be cut out. You don't need it. Um, but other ones are like you know you tend to find your characters doing things like nodding. Nodding's a really common one. Frowning. There's a lot of frowning going on. Um, and so you just kind of go through, you do a search actually for like, you know, there's, I've got about a dozen words and just sort of, you know, I mean, I don't think, I, I don't think I grin much, but yeah. Um, yeah. Nodding and frowning, nodding and frowning. Everyone's nodding and frowning. I was like, just, just keep your head still. <laughs> <laughs> you idiots. <laughs> and it's like, it's, you know, when you see like several on a same page, you're like, oh my God, everybody is like, it's like, like little, little nodding dogs at the back of your car, like the little thing like that. <laughs> So I get the <laughs> oh, Keep your head still, you idiots. <laughs> um, what's been one of the most fun scenes that you've written and what's been one of the most difficult? Oh, okay, interesting. So fun scenes. Um, fun scenes. Well, I had, um, I had a lot of fun because I quite like, I, I quite like writing like action scenes. Uh, and I think it's a really underrated thing in, in, in fiction. It's like quite hard to do, you know, do it effectively that actually you get across what's happening and it's kind of clear. Um, but most recently in these Skelfs books, because they're about funerals and they're about death and they're kind of definitely 
like sort of poignant because it's about how we deal with life in the face of death and all that stuff. Um, but this the opening scene of the second Scales book, uh, The Big Chill, it's basically a funeral scene. So Dorothy, the, one of the th three central characters, she's like conducting a funeral. And then in the middle of the funeral, there's like a car chase bursts into the cemetery. So like there's this guy like who's uh, uh, who's joyriding is getting chased by a police car, and they they sort of chase each other right round the right round the cemetery, and then they crash and like almost hit the funeral people. They just get out of the way, but the car, the main car, uh, ends up in the open grave. Uh, <laughs> and so that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that actually because uh, it's kind of ludicrous but also shocking and and there's no i mean there's your job as a writer is to try and make it convincing like this uh it's a confidence trick like, trick, like i said before like your, your job if you do it right is to make it seem like so the reader reads that and doesn't go oh that would never happen like they read that and go oh my god that car just crashed into that open grave uh, and they just take it as like oh that's the kind of thing that happens in the in this book so i really enjoyed that and um, that was good fun um what was the other question one of the hardest. One of the hardest. One of the hardest. One of the hardest. Yeah, there was. Um, yeah, there was a couple. I found it quite hard sometimes. One of my novels uh, called The Jump, which uh, is set in South Queensbury, uh, just outside Edinburgh. It's, it's just right. Uh, if you don't know the geography, Queensbury's um, right in the shadow of the the fourth bridge and the fourth road bridge, and now the Queensbury crossing. All three, all three of those bridges are right there. And so they're really sort of weird. You're weirdly sort of ominous because you're kind of literally overlooked by these massive structures, you know. Um, and that book was all about suicide. So, so the central character, um, her teenage son had committed suicide, um, had killed himself by jumping off the fourth road bridge because it was a very, it was a very common suicide spot. I'm not sure if it is still. It might well be. Um, and so I was writing about that, and there was a couple of scenes in there which sort of confronted the reality of that, that topic, I think. Um, like, especially the opening scene, actually, where, she, where she's kind of thinking about um, what she's lost and what happened and what she could have done differently. Uh, and I, I kind of I wrote that whole book um, without really thinking about what it would be like to talk about it at events and stuff like that. And so I started to do like publicity for it and, you know, do library events and festivals and stuff. And I, I read that opening scene or a part of it um, uh, at the start. And it was like, it was like sucking all the air out of the room. <laughs> Everyone just was suddenly like, oh my God, Jesus Christ. Um, I, I, and I don't think, I think sometimes audiences didn't really recover. Um, and so it was quite a weird, what weird book to, to talk about in public. Cause it was, and, I mean, not to go into, specific details but i i have some his family history of, of suicide so it was kind of based on some of my own experiences tangentially uh, and so so yeah that so there was elements of that book that were definitely quite hard hard to write definitely mm -hmm. um what was i just going to ask you what's the biggest research rabbit hole you've fallen down oh wow um yeah, you get loads actually. You spend and you spend far too long doing it. It's like it's because it's I mean it's classic um procrastination, isn't it? That you just are like, oh, I've got this chapter I need to write. So I'll tell you what, I could go and just investigate some random thing um for hours. And what have I been thinking about recently? Well, I, like really recently, I've spent a long time because I did a lot of research about the funeral industry, obviously, before um I started writing the scales books. And I actually worked as a writer in residence at a funeral director's for six months. Um, <clears throat> this was several years before I wrote the books. It wasn't really, I wasn't intending to do it as research. I was just intending to, I actually ended up writing a nonfiction thing about the funeral industry and how these people cope with, you know, what they have to do every day, the people who work in it. Um, so I did a lot of investigation about, um, like, for example, the opening scene of the first book is an open air funeral pyre, which is not technically legal in, this, in the UK, unless you get permission. So I had to do quite a lot of research online about, how you do that, what temperatures you need to get at, what it looks like, what it smells like, for example, and all these kind of things. So there's lots of death stuff, which actually I find really fascinating. Um, recently, 
I've been I'm working, thinking about another Skelse book. And it's really interesting to look at things like like green alternative funerals and stuff like that. So I've done, I've kind of gone down a massive, and I'm not sure if any of this is going to end up in a book or not, but you know, it's really interesting about natural burials. Fair enough. That's already in the books, but there's things like resumation, which is like, it's basically, it's also called alkaline electrolysis or something. It's basically you, you dissolve the body in kind of water and various like actually non toxic chemicals. And it's like, a tenth as bad for the environment as cremation and you still get ashes away at the end of it you need to buy a resumator uh, which is like a big thing it's like a big up my massive like washing machine basically for a body uh, but and stuff like that actually interesting um, and then I got interested in like you can get buried in a mushroom suit so you wear this sort of biodegradable outfit that's got mushroom spores in it and then basically once you're buried the mushrooms feed off your body and then grow and create a sort of a create a sort of ecosystem. So that's another one. And then I was looking at other different funeral and burial um, ceremonies and processes in different cultures around the world. Again, which is probably not going to make it in the books, but it's really interesting. There's one in India. There's a a sect of Zoroastrians who um, who have a, who have sort of buildings called the Tower of Silence which is where they basically, it's called excarnation. They put the bodies out to be eaten by um, vultures or any other carrying birds. But they have a sort of, they build a sort of tower and inside it, there's like slots to put lots of bodies in. And then there's a big, a big well in the middle for all the bones and that to drop in once the birds have eaten all the, all the flesh off the bodies. It's good, it's cheery stuff, isn't it? It's good, it's like it. Um, but one of the interesting things is that they're really struggling, uh, the Zoroastrians in India, because... Uh, the number of vultures has massively declined. So they don't really have any, they don't have enough birds to eat the bodies anymore. So <laughs> they don't really know what to do. Uh, crows, crows won't cut it. They, just, they, don't, they don't eat enough. Um, so yeah, so there you go. That was quite a long rabbit hole to go, <laughs> to go down. Death and its, merry, its myriad of forms. That's awesome. Um, oh, do you have any phobias and would you write about those? Um, I don't think I have any phobias. Um, I don't. I can't think of anything. What are the kind of usual ones? Like snakes and spiders and stuff. I'm not bothered. Um, what else? Am I am I phobic to anything? No, I don't think I am. And I think if I was, well, I mean, it's not easy for me to say if I'm not if I'm not. I don't have any phobias, but I kind of find that the things that you write about tend to be the things that unsettle you anyway. That's the good stuff, I think. I have this chat with my uh, writer pal Helen Fitzgerald. I don't know if you, you know her, read any of her books, but she's um, she's great. And it's always that you can tell when someone's really mining into the stuff that really disturbs themselves, or or that they don't know what they think about, or you know they're kind of upset about, and um, because that's when it gets really good. You can feel you can feel the writer sort of tapping into something, and that was I think certainly the case with. The jump and the subject of suicide. I think that was that kind of hit home uh, emotionally. So I think as a writer, you don't always have to do this, of course. But I think that if you are willing to have a look at, like, honestly, have a look at what what disturbs you or you know what horrifies you, then that that could quite often lead to the best kind of fiction or the most emotionally engaging fiction for the reader, anyway, because they pick up on that, like, through in between the lines. I think readers pick up on whether it's something that you really feel strongly about or not. Oh, but yeah. Pixie, she likes to come say hello. Sure she wants to be the star. <laughs> oh yeah. Very cute. Yeah, she's all right. <laughs> um, have you made lots of author friends since you started writing? Um, yeah, I have actually. I mean, I'm, I'm not... Um, yeah, I didn't really know any authors when I, when I first started off. I wasn't like, I know a lot of people go to like, you know, festivals like Harrogate and stuff like that um, and do that long before they're published. I never really did. I used to go, I mean, I, I'm living in Edinburgh. I went to the Edinburgh Book Festival, but it's not the same kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I have made a lot of author friends, I think, over the years. I mean, it's been a while now. My first book was published in 2006. So that's quick math, 16 years uh, and like 13 books. So, and you do slowly get to know people um, over time from appearing at the same events, festivals and stuff like that, um, quite often library events. And in Scotland, there's a, there's a kind of definite, there's kind of two networks I have, I think. There's like crime writers 
that I always meet at places like Harrogate and other crime festivals. And then there's also Scottish writers, you know, not necessarily genre specific, because we're always quite often at the same, the same kind of festivals or events. Um, and so we kind of kind of meet each other at all these things. Uh, and yeah, a lot of them are really good friends. And that's kind of accelerated um, in the last few years because I'm in a band um, with Luca, who I believe you've spoken to. And so there's myself and Luca Vesti, Val McDermott, uh, Mark Billingham, Chris Brookmeyer and Stuart Neville. We are all in the Fun Loving Crime Writers, which started a few years ago, which is a band of crime writers who are doing songs about crime and murder and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I play the drums, but that has become like um, like a little gang. Like they're my, kind of my best mates now. Like we kind of just uh, are always chucking around ideas. I mean, we start off talking about music, but we always end up talking about all sorts of other stuff. And like, you know, just playing gigs with them. Because you know, when you do gigs, there's a lot of sitting around doing nothing. Um, quite often you get your sound check and then you're so you either going away and getting a meal or just hanging out in the bar, whatever it is. So, um, and after the gig, you're all kind of in the same high, try to come down from the adrenaline. And so, I kind of I consider those guys definitely to be like my best writer friends these days. It's like the best idea ever was like forming that band because it just apart from the fun we have on stage, the rest of it's all great as well because they're all like super cool guys. So it's it just. It's just such a nice thing to have, especially because writers, you know, the vast majority of our time is spent sitting at a desk on our own, like creating fictional worlds and not talking to people. So I think it's great that we have this other um, other outlet. And the other thing I do is also um, uh, I'm in, there's a, there's a Scotland writers football team. <clears throat> so we, so I've, I've been kind of, I was one of the, person people that organized it at the start um, I don't organize it anymore but so that's another thing another way I think writers are always looking for chances to socialize um you know if you can and that's great we just we just were playing the England writers football team at the weekend there and um, beat them on penalties uh, just it was a close game one one draw and then we beat them on penalties um, but then we all kind of go out afterwards and like you know go out for a meal and do a book event and do readings and stuff like that and just generally catch up with the England guys as well so so yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I try and make as I mean that's kind of my world is you know speaking to other writers. So you try and make as many pals as possible. Do you um, hear a lot from your readers? <laughs> yeah, always. I mean, more so now. I think. I mean, it gradually just builds up and builds up. I think um, that kind of higher profile you get, you get emails and you get messages and websites and also like obviously social media. You get loads of stuff like that. It's great. It's always really interesting. Um, it's fascinating how I used to think, I mean, I, I remember years and years ago, someone, I can't remember who it was, another, an author saying, you know, you know, writing a book is like a two-way process, like the readers bring their own stuff to it, you know, it's like a conversation, and I remember thinking, that's bullshit, like, you're, you're writing the book, right, you're writing it, that's the words on the page, but it's, but unfortunately, she was absolutely right, um, it is a conversation that actually, it's really fascinating what readers bring to a book they bring their own experiences their own value judgments or not their own kind of morality to what's happening and people focus on very different things like um you know some people will be really interested in the technical plotting murder mystery aspect of something some people will focus on like character elements of one character or you know whether it's a goodie or a baddie or somewhere in between uh, and so I, th I find that endlessly fascinating um and and for a reader to say you know say something oh I found this in this book I mean who am I to say no you didn't like no it's like that's ridiculous that's a very authoritarian way of looking at it it's like you know once you write the book it is out there and then people can take what they want from it um and I have what I've noticed is I'm definitely getting more reader feedback from these Skelfs books uh, the last three novels and the previous ones and almost all of the sort of the feedback I get the chat I get from readers is about the three women, is about the characters. And I find that really interesting because obviously before I started writing these books, I'd written standalones. So they're, kind of, they're all separate sets of characters mostly. And I was in awe of like, you know, I was chatting to Val and Mark Billingham and folk like that, you know, who've got like 20 books in a series or something like that. Because I didn't really know how, how that worked, how they could do that, you know, how they, how they stop from repeating themselves or how they come up with new ways to sort of shape what they're doing and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, it was such a good, such an incredible skill. Uh, and I realized that, you know, I, I 
I do spend a lot of time plotting these books, but actually the characters are the key. So when you have returning characters, that's what readers really love. That's really come home to me, actually, with these books, these three books, is that they are on a journey now with like Dorothy, Jenny and Hannah, it feels like, and they want to, they want to know more about what's happening in their lives. I mean, if you if you make the plot a bunch of garbage, they will tell you, obviously. <laughs> but but I think they're more interested in the sort of dynamics between the three women and how they're all getting on with their lives, which is really interesting. It's a really it's again a new experience for me, and I'm, I really enjoy it actually. What was your favourite first as an author? My favourite first. My favourite first. My favourite first. My favourite. I mean, it has to just be. I'm sure everyone says it's just seeing their, you know, their book in a shop for the first time. I saw somebody actually. I saw somebody buying my book quite recently for the first time. Actually, that was like book eleven. I mean, I'd seen I'd seen my own book in a shop, and I'd seen someone reading my book on like a train. Uh, both of which were kind of amazing. But I actually saw I was in Waterstones in, in one of the Waterstones in Edinburgh, an ocean terminal, and because uh, I was waiting, my daughter has a dance class just in the sort of studios up the stairs. So I was just in sort of, you know, I wasn't, I genuinely wasn't standing looking at my books, <laughs> waiting. I was actually looking at somebody else's books and I just turned around and there was a, a woman who was like, had a dark matter, which is the first girl's book and a couple of other things in her hand. Like she was, she'd picked up stuff to go to the till and she was still sort of looking around. I was like, holy shit. Um, and so I did, I did, I didn't, I didn't stalk her. I just I hung around in the shop until she went to tell and she bought them. And I was like, oh, wow, that's great. I didn't, I thought, like, what would you, would you go up and say? That's weird if you go up and say, excuse me, that's my book. I think that's <laughs> fucking weird. I don't know. I'm not confident enough to go, yes, that's my book. That'd be weird. I would have, because, like, do you want me to sign it? Because we all love, all of us readers love signed books. So I'd be totally like, oh, you picked up my book and do you want me to sign it? <laughs> I know, I should have. I should have done that. I know, that's stupid not Oh. <laughs> yeah oh well um, if you're able to spend a day with any author dead or alive who would you like to spend a day with wow any author dead or alive oh it's interesting <laughs> yeah mm. um, who would I like to spend a day with I think I've been reading a lot of um Ursula K. Le Guin books recently. I've been getting a lot into science fiction. Um, and I think she is, sounds like an endlessly fascinating person with loads of ideas. Sadly, no longer with us. But um, also she wrote a book about, about creative writing called Steering the Craft. I'm actually looking at it now, it's on my desk. Um, <clears throat> uh, which is really interesting as well. It's got a lot of interesting insight into the whole thing. And I think it would be, and she just seemed like, you know, to have her head screwed on, right? You know, she just didn't, I mean, long before, um, you know, other, other writers were worrying about things like this, she was kind of just dealing with issues like politics and gender and stuff like that, you know, through her science fiction, kind of, kind of it felt effortlessly and colonization and all sorts of other stuff. She was addressing these big ideas through brilliant sort of, um, you know, propulsive narratives that were really engaging, but really thoughtful at the same time. And I just think it would be great to get her take on most things. I went through, after I read a bunch of her books, I just sort of scoured like, you know, like podcasts for interviews with her. I just listened to loads of interviews with her. And, and like, I just, I was constantly like walking down the road or through the park, nodding to myself going, yeah, 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 that makes sense. Yeah, okay, I totally get that. So she just seems to be like a really, a really smart person that would have been a great person to, to pick her brains. If you're able to travel to any period of time, either forwards or backwards, where would you go? Wow, great. Forwards, right? I never understand people who say backwards. I never understand that. Like, like why would you go back to a time when you kind of know what's been going on there? When you can go forwards and find out. Jesus Christ. Uh, as for when and where, God knows. I mean, at the moment, it feels like there's not going to be a planet. There's not going to be much left of planet Earth, like much more than about six months from now. Um, but I would go. I would go quite far in the future. Like I don't know, pick a number. Uh, not not hugely, not millions of years, but someone like if you think we've been around, sort of humans for I don't know ten thousand years. So maybe another ten thousand years in the future. What the hell is that going to look like? 
God knows, back to being like cavemen and cavewomen, maybe. Um, I think someone like that would be really fascinating or millions of years in the future. I mean, there wouldn't be any humanity left or it would be totally changed. Um, so maybe you wouldn't be able to communicate with anyone. I don't know, it'd be weird. I've kind of got this idea of a fantasy novel that I want to write, which does that, which actually does that, which kind of leaps hugely backwards and forwards in time, like millions of years, hundreds of millions of years, actually. So, um, so I could do all of that and then that'd be good. I could put it down as research. <laughs> <laughs> the book. Uh, yeah. So 10,000, let's say 10,000 years in the future. God knows what it'd be like. Or maybe, I th no, see, now I'm confused because I couldn't communicate with someone from 10,000 years in the past. So maybe a thousand years in the future, because a thousand years ago was 1000 AD. We could just about maybe communicate language-wise with someone from that time, like does Chaucer kind of time, isn't it? I don't know. I'm not very good with history. Um, so yeah, let's say a thousand years in the future. Keep it nice and simple. Yeah, I want to go back. When, when, go would you, back. When, when would you go back to? Well, I was born in 1983. So I want to go back to the 1980s, but as like a 20 year old. So okay. I get to experience the music, nothing else, just the music. That's all I want. I want to see Queen, I want to see Bowie, I want to see Michael Jackson, Madonna, and everything all in their prime and Prince, you know, that I never got to experience because I was a baby or they died before I was old enough to experience and appreciate them. If you wanted to go all the streets, you would probably have to get quite a big bank loan to afford the tickets, really, <laughs> even back in the 80s. Yeah, that's a good point. But, you know, I, it's worth it. Or if <laughs> you just take money with you, if you sort of take out all your money now because of inflation working the other way, you probably would be fine when you get back there. You could probably buy a whole row of Michael Jackson tickets. That's three pounds at the minute, so probably not. <laughs> okay, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll wait for a couple of weeks until I have some money and then go back. It would be really interesting to, having said that about the past, it would be really interesting to go back to when you were a little kid and view it as an adult, actually, to see how wrong your impression is of, you know, of your world that you grew up in because it was through the eyes of a five-year-old or whatever. That would be quite interesting. Yeah. I found out when I spoke to Luca Veste that we were born on the exact same day, which was very weird. Wow. That's Literally. amazing. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> yeah. Twins. Yeah. He said he was going to go talk to his mum. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's... Um, who was your first celebrity crush? First celebrity crush? Um, probably, well, there's a couple maybe. I guess, technically, um, Agnetha from ABBA. Uh, I absolutely loved her. She was amazing. But actually, the one that I, I really fell hard for was Adam Ant. Like, oh my God, I was a, I was such a huge Adam and the Ants fan. Uh, and I just loved Adam and I just thought he was the coolest guy, which he kind of was, still is kind of. Um, which I just thought he was just like the coolest guy on the planet. So there you go. Um, and, and if they ever did a duet, the two of them, that would, uh, my head would have exploded. Yeah. Not quite sure how that would work, but yeah, no, that would be cool. Sure actually, I agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, where's the strangest or funniest place you've ever woken up? Strangest or funniest place I've ever woken up. Um, ooh, good question. Where have I ever woken up? Well, I kind of, I did. I have once woken up from sleepwalking uh, in the corridor of a hotel in Dublin and I was naked and the fire alarm was going off. So suddenly the corridor was really busy. <laughs> so then I had to, then I had to go. <laughs> yeah, and then I had to go down to the front desk naked to get a to get a spare key from my room. <laughs> That's good fun. Yeah, it sounds um yeah. <laughs> like, and like the foyer was just full of people who'd had to evacuate their rooms. It was great. Good times. <laughs> yeah. Bless you. Next question. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> do you have any strange or unusual uh, party tricks or talents? Party tricks or talents? Do I ha do I have any strange party tricks or talents? I don't know. Do I? Um, no, 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 no. I can juggle. I can juggle three things. That's only three. It's not like amazing. But I mean, I, I taught myself to juggle when I was quite wee. Um, what else? Party tricks or talents? 
I mean, I can play the drums. That's why I'm drumming in a band. But that's not that unusual. Um, I can play the harmonica a little bit. I can play Flower of Scotland on the harmonica. Um, what else? I don't know. What do other people say for this? What's the best answer you've had for that one? <laughs> I don't know, actually. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, God, I can't remember. I'd have to think about it and get back to you. Yeah, yeah. Party tricks. Well, that's probably it. I've got that thing where I can roll my tongue. Like that's genetic, isn't it? So, can you do that? Yeah. Some people can, some people just can't do it. It's weird, isn't it? No, I can't understand how people can't, but yeah. It's... Yeah, it's strange. My yeah. dad, my dad can um raise one eyebrow, which is not that unusual, like one eyebrow at a time, but he can also wiggle one earlobe at a time. He can wiggle one ear. He can wiggle one ear and raise his other eyebrow and then do the opposite. Sadly, that has not transferred genetically to me because um, that would be quite a good party trick. Yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> um, if I was to ask those nearest and dearest to you what your most annoying habits are, what would they say? Most annoying habits? Uh, good question. Good questions. Probably too many to mention. <laughs> um, I tend to interrupt people, um, which is fucking bad form, basically. It's just ignorant, isn't it? Um you know, I've got an idea and I just blah, blah, blah and say it when you're in the middle of... It's excitement, isn't it? I do that. I get excited because I thought of something and then, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I tend to interrupt people, I think. So my, my missus would probably, my wife would probably say that. Um, what else? I don't know. Um, I mean, I, sw I swear a lot. That's I don't really see that as a bad thing. So fuck them. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So no, yeah, interrupting people. That's probably the answer, I think. <laughs> Um, so you said you're working on book four at the moment. So what's coming next for you? Well, I'm kind of, uh, I'm just doing the edits of book four in the Scalf series. I'm, I was sort of planning a fifth Scalf book. That's definitely under contract. So I'm going to be writing that uh, next. I also have a science fiction novel out there in the world trying to find a publisher. Um, and the way I've written it, it ends on a cliffhanger. So it definitely needs a sequel. Um, so that needs to be written. Um, and I've got an idea for what I'm going to do for that. And I mentioned briefly in passing that I, I'm quite interested in writing a fantasy novel, kind of. I don't even know if it is a fantasy novel. But anyway, um, about a girl who hears voices in her head, which turn out to be real, um, uh, set over 500 million years in Edinburgh, <laughs> like you do. So sort of time travel -y thing. Um and then, you know, that's probably enough to be keep, keep me going, I think. That's like three projects on the go. I've got a couple of, I've still got a couple of ideas for standalone books, um, which are kind of on the back burner. I'm enjoying writing The Scalf so much at the moment, actually. So I'm just kind of keen to just uh, keep doing it while you enjoy doing it, I think, is, is the main thing. Um, so that's always there in the background if I get bored or if I want to try and, you know, do something else for, in the meantime, give myself a break. I know other writers like uh, Val, um, like she we'd always write one book from one series, then one book from a different series afterwards. So she doesn't kind of get bored of writing the same thing. Um, that's an interesting idea. That's that's great if it works in terms of deadlines and schedules and stuff. Um, but uh, so I would like to keep, you know, just keep doing as variety, as much variety as possible. But that's three projects anyway that I've, that I've definitely got that I want to do. Uh, we'll be seeing you at any of the festivals this year. Will you? Uh, yes. I don't think I'm going to be at Harrogate this year uh, for various reasons. I think I'm going on holiday, actually. Um, I'm definitely going to be at the Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, I am also going to be at Bloody Scotland, I think. Um, and there's a few other ones I'm doing, like, I mean, I think they're mostly in Scotland. Olapool Book Festival, Butte Noir, I think I'm going to be at, which is a great one. Um, have you been to have you been to Butte for that one? No. No, I've heard good things. So yeah, it's really cool. Are you a Harrogate regular or? Um, last year was the first time I went to any book festival. So I went to Harrogate for the first time. I went to Bloody Scotland for the first time. Um, I loved both of them, and I'm going to both again this year. Right. Yeah. So I I usually go to Harrogate, but I'm not doing this year for some reason. Um. So that's the other ones. Uh, definitely Bloody Scotland, I think Edinburgh Book Festival, and you know. The usual caveat of anyone who wants to invite me, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'm happy to come along. Thanks very much. Yeah, I live like way down south in Bedfordshire. 
Right. So Scotland is just a mission for me. It took me yeah. from, I think when I came to bloody Scotland, I left my house at half six, seven in the morning and got to Scotland at three. It's dedication though, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, it was awesome. Didn't care. Loved it. <laughs> it's a great atmosphere of like Scotland. It always has been like, you know, it's not, it's, I think this is, is this year it's 10th year, I think. It's the 10th anniversary. Uh, and it's always been amazing. It's been so good at supporting up and coming like writers, myself included, when I was like, you know, younger. Uh, and it's just really great. All sorts of other like the, um, you know, letting people read, um, you know, before the main events and stuff like that. And then um, Pitch Perfect like events and stuff like that. It's so good. Such a such a good atmosphere in that place. Great. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I saw uh, Tina Baker uh, do her reading dressed as a bee. I saw then, that. Yeah. <laughs> and then somehow she ended up in a um, thing outside because she was dressed as a bee, but they were doing a save the bee thing. It was. Yeah. Bless her. <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah. that. That's so bizarre. It is. Bless her. Yeah, she's a crazy lady, but she's Very lovely. Crazy. Yeah, she's insane. Um, well, you may be pleased to know I don't have any more questions for you unless you think there's anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell us about. Uh, is there anything you haven't asked me? No, no, I don't think so. Um, the well is dry. I've got no other chat. <laughs> Good. You feel like you've been suitably, you know, cancelled or whatever the word would be <laughs> more like a grilling isn't it than a counseling i think I mean, no it was good it was good it was great yes yes i feel that was um you know you'd pay 50 quid for that kind of session with a therapist so that's <laughs> that was thanks got it for nothing thanks donna you're welcome <laughs> so just before we go would you just like to tell everyone where they can get your books from and where they can find out more about you uh yes uh so you can get any of my books from uh your local independent bookshops uh, small indies need as much help as possible, especially at the moment after the pandemic when a lot of them struggled. My publisher is Arenda Books. You can order it directly from them. Again, it's a fairly small publisher uh, and uh, they can do with all the help they can get. Uh, you can find out more about me. I've got a website, uh, dougjohnson.com, um, but more up-to-date stuff is usually on social media, on Twitter, where I am at Doug underscore Johnston and Instagram, where I am at writer Doug J, I think. So that tends to be where all the all the all the cheeky gossip is. Yes, well, thank you very much. Cheers, thanks, Donna. <laughs>